foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Emma's Revolution, and I'm Marcy Winograd. Welcome to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations, such as KBOO in Portland and KCSB in Santa Barbara. You can also hear us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Do check out our website at codepink.org, where you will find the latest on our campaigns and all of our radio episodes and podcasts. On this Code Pink radio episode, demonstrations on Julian Assange's birthday to free the WikiLeaks publisher. Journalist Glenn Greenwald on why we must press for Julian's freedom and a conversation with Stella Assange, Julian's wife and a member of his legal team. On the second half of our program, Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin will join me to talk about President Biden's announcement that he will send banned cluster bombs to Ukraine. Has Biden crossed a red line for the Democratic Party, for NATO? Also a presentation from a member of the German left party about the need for Germany to exit NATO. First, let's go to Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink, and Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, arrested recently for blocking the entrance to the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Right now, we have to know the truth. There's no democracy without freedom of the press. Because the press is the only thing that can hold government accountable. And there's no freedom of the press as long as Assange is being prosecuted. We are, you know, inside the belly of the beast, the empire, and its violence. When you don't have freedom of the press and no one's telling the truth, it weaponizes your capacity to feel, to have compassion and empathy, because if you don't have the full story, and if your heart is being manipulated with lies, then we're all lost. How can we have peace in the world if we're just drowning in lies? So I think people in the world understand that, know the value of it, know this is a critical moment. They understand how critical this moment is, that you could have a publisher publish the truth and be tortured. That's a moment of pivot that we should all be very seriously looking at and standing up against. It was Julian himself who said that if wars can be started by lies, then peace can be started by truth. And I think that's been a big part of his motivation, is to create a world that's peaceful, where countries aren't going around killing 
thousands of people. Most every war that the U.S. has been involved in has been the result of lies. We've been lied into war. We cannot allow freedom of the press to be eroded. The voices of protest against the Biden administration's prosecution of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange for publishing the Afghan war diary and the Iraq war logs. Those documents expose the U.S. government's war crimes, torture, and civilian deaths. Assange is being held in solitary confinement in London's Belmarsh prison as the U.S. tries to extradite him for publishing what the New York Times also published, evidence of U.S. crimes, truthful information in the public interest. This month, the U.K. High Court Judge Jonathan Swift rejected Assange's most recent appeal, pushing him dangerously close to extradition. If extradited, Julian Assange will face up to 175 years in prison. This leaves just one remaining avenue at the high court level for Assange to appeal the U.S. extradition order. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation hosted an interview with journalist Glenn Greenwald on the case to free Julian Assange. Listen. So why hasn't the U.S. dropped the charges and what will this mean for other journalists? To answer these questions, we've reached Glenn Greenwald. He's an independent journalist and the host of System Update on Rumble. We've reached him in Rio. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. A lot of people have been urging the U.S. to drop the charges against Julian Assange. And recently, even the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, said there is no point in this continued prosecution. So why hasn't the U.S. dropped these charges? Yeah, it's a very good question. Literally every major press freedom and civil liberties group in the West, often which agree on very little, have united to urge the Biden administration to do so on the grounds it's the gravest threat to press freedom in the West. The history of the U.S. security state, the CIA and the uh, NSA and Homeland Security is very much that if somebody exposes their secrets, even when those secrets are evidence of crimes or other deceit and corruption, as was the case here, they want to punish the person to the fullest extent to really destroy them, mostly as an example to warn others that if they discover evidence of criminality and are thinking about doing the same thing, their lives will also be destroyed. So I think letting Julian come be free, even though he spent almost a decade in captivity of various forms, would be just simply too much for them from that perspective. Now, the U.S. is saying that Assange put many people's lives at risk by publishing the leaked documents. What do you think of that argument? I would challenge anybody who believes that to identify even a single person that has ever been put in harm's way as a result of these publications. This is what the U.S. government says. In every instance where someone comes forward and blows the whistle on their conduct, they said that about the great Pentagon Papers whistleblower, Daniel Ellsberg, who just recently passed away. 
They said that about my source, Edward Snowden, when he gave us the material to report on the NSA that won the Pulitzer Prize. They say it in every instance, and yet when pressed on specifics, they can never claim who it was who's harmed because the reality, the only people who are harmed from these kind of revelations are the people in power whose crimes have been exposed. It wasn't like the names of any covert agents got exposed or anything like that. WikiLeaks has always been very careful with the information it releases. They worked with the New York Times and The Guardian to do it. So it's just a way of trying to demonize people who expose their corruption and their deceit. So by prosecuting Assange under the Espionage Act, what message is the U.S. sending to journalists around the world? It's interesting when the indictment was first unveiled under the Trump administration, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post warning that this would put investigative journalists at risk all over the world. Two months later, I was contacted by a source we, who enabled me to do some extremely uh, earth-shattering reporting here in Brazil that led to the release from prison of the current president, Lula da Silva. And when Brazilian prosecutors tried to prosecute me for that reporting unsuccessfully, they used the template that the United States was using against Assange because the theory is, is that if you work with your source to help them avoid detection or you encourage them to get additional information, which every good journalist not only will do, but has to do, should do, that's your ethical obligation, they're trying to criminalize the heart of investigative journalism. And that's why even people who dislike Assange politically are so concerned about the press freedom implications of this prosecution. Now, does it make a difference that some people may not view Assange as a journalist? They might view him as either a troublemaker or someone who deals in, in stolen or illegal documents. In your view, does he qualify as a journalist? Well, I would hope that all journalists on some level are troublemakers. That's kind of our job is to create problems for people in power by telling the public things they want to hide. And some of the best reporting, in fact, if you could pick up, if you pick up the New York Times, the Washington Post, if you listen to the CBC, if you read the Guardian or the BBC, every day there's information that is in some way stolen. Sources come forward and give us classified information that the government says you, that's the stuff of investigative reporting. So if somebody now becomes a quote unquote non-journalist because their source has taken information and given it to them against the law, that means most journalists are now non-journalists. And that's the reason why this, this precedent would be so threatening. And the other thing I would say is the Constitution of the United States protects not a special class of people called journalists. It protects the act of journalism. You know, back when the Constitution was enacted, ordinary citizens like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine, they weren't professional journalists. They were using the printing press to warn against the abuse of the abuses of the British crown. It's the activity of journalism that is protected, not a special privileged group of people called journalists. That was journalist Glenn Greenwald. Here in the United States, the Assange Defense Committee is campaigning to free WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. To learn more about that campaign, visit assangedefense.org. That's assangedefense.org. Now, let's go to an interview Code Pink's Susie Gilbert conducted last year with Stella Assange, Julian's wife, a human rights defender, and a member of Julian's legal team. So I'm excited to welcome Stella Assange, and you're joining us from London, is that right? That's right. Hi, Susie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's so good to have you here. So I'm sure a lot of our audience have, have heard about the Julian Assange case over the years. Can you fill us in on, on what's happening right now? And, you know, why is this arguably the most important press freedom case um, 
you know, in relation to the US right now. Can you just give us a bit of a, a catch up on what's what's happening? Well, this case is really the single biggest threat against the First Amendment in the United States and against press freedoms. The United States, of course, has kind of the gold standard of press freedom in the world. Uh, European countries are, are way behind. And what has happened is that under the Trump administration, the, um, the administration decided to go after Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, um, but also after the, the press in general. So it was part of the Trump administration's anti-press agenda that enabled uh, the prosecution of Julian. And the Obama administration had previously declined to prosecute uh, Julian in relation to the very same uh, publications, which relate to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and torture in Guantanamo Bay and rendition and so on. Uh, so these are publications that were incredibly important, are incredible, incredibly important still, which document uh, war crimes and the uh, killings of, of civilians in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, among others, by the United States. And these are crimes that have gone unpunished and the publication of these documents showed that there was no political will and there never has been uh, to actually uh, prosecute those crimes or, or find any accountability. And uh, for the first time, the US administration decided to prosecute a publisher for having published true information. And they used a, an old uh, relic of, of the First World War, the 1917 Espionage Act, which is incredibly broadly worded um, and that, uh, you know, constitutional lawyers have been uh, um, warning for the past over 50 years that one day they could use this Espionage Act to prosecute a journalist, to prosecute a publisher. And if the act is construed in that way, that is a paradigm shift because it means that it will set a legal precedent that would al will allow any future administration to use uh, the act in that way. And that's precisely what happened with the Trump administration. That is what is happening with this prosecution. And it is opening the doors to uh, being, being able to prosecute journalists for having published true information. And that's where we're at. So, so what is a what is a way out of this? I mean, why? What is where? What's going on with Julian right now, in terms of the extradition? And and what do you see as a path path through this to freedom for Julian? This has been going on, you know, for so many years. What's what's the sort of light at the end of the tunnel right now, from your point of point of view? Well, I think there's there's a growing awareness. Uh, Julian has not been a free man since he was initially arrested on the 7th of December 2010 in the context of, you know, um, calls for his assassination and so on um, by the U by U.S. pundits and so on. Um, Julian has been in a high security prison, the U U.K.'s harshest prison called Belmarsh Prison for over three years. Since his arrest on the 11th of April 2019, he has been in this prison continuously. 
I, that was a whole year before COVID even started. So just to, to you know, remind everyone about how long it's been. And yes, there's been um, extradition proceedings in the UK, but you shouldn't um, rely on, on getting any just outcome there because uh, the extradition treaty between the US and the UK is, is really uh, heavily tilted in favor of the US. There's no prima facie evidence. What mm. the DOJ says is taken at face value uh, the defense cannot challenge, cannot cross-examine any of, of those affirmations by, by the U.S. government. And so, you know, when Julian's fighting this enormous and complex case uh, from inside Belmarsh prison where he can't even access his, his um, legal papers and so on. So, on. Uh, so I think there might have been or there might be some complacency in the United States, uh, a belief that maybe the U.K. will stop this, but I would, um, you know, I, I, I don't think the UK will stop this extradition. I think the, U, the US will have, uh, unless the Biden administration drops this case, um, this case will come to trial in Virginia, where uh, there is no public, uh, you know, a, a trial uh, for, you know, the, the charges concerned the Espionage Act, where there is no public interest defense. Um, Julian basically cannot mount a defense um, or say that, you know, there, there has been no, no harm and it's the public interest uh, because it's the Espionage Act and there is no such defense. Um, and so uh, the Biden administration is furthering the worst of uh, legacy, the worst legacy of the Trump administration, because this uh, pr prosecution is a lasting, um, as I said, a paradigm shift, uh, because it sets the precedent that will, will allow uh, future, uh, future administrations to go after the press. And this is what constitutional lawyers, press um, advocates have been warning for for the past 50 years since the Pentagon Papers. Wow. So what's actually happening in the US now? What's the sort of support? Where's the support coming from? Um, and, and what are folks doing to try and end this, this persecution of Julian that's coming from the US? What's, 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 how, how are things looking in the US right now, do you think? Well, look at the, at the, um, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post have both come out strongly uh, calling for the Biden administration to to drop the prosecution uh, and uh, and to end this attempt to extradite uh, Julian to the United States because they understand uh, the danger it poses for their work. It's not um, it's not you know, out of the kindness of their hearts. It's because uh, they've done the legal analysis. They've actually looked at the, at the indictment and what is being criminalized here is uh, receiving and possessing, communicating information to the public from a journalistic source. That is 17 charges under the Espionage Act, which consist of, of that uh, and of 
communicating with a source which is uh, construed as a conspiracy. This is this is what um, you know. Experts have been warning uh, uh, that this that you know some some administration could could cross that line, and that line was crossed under the Trump administration, and the Biden administration is furthering it. Uh, there have been two letters to the Biden administration, one in 2019, sorry, one in uh, last year and another one this year. The one that um, by, I think, 25 or 27 press freedom and human rights organizations, all the major ones, you know, mm-hmm. uh, ACLU and Amnesty and CPJ and so on. They're all uh, unanimous about the danger that this prosecution poses uh, and that it strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. Uh, the second one, the second letter that called on the Biden administration to drop it came in, I think, in October uh, 2021. And that followed an extraordinary story that had been published, uh, an investigation uh, in by Yahoo News uh, investigative unit, three, three national security journalists working on this piece. They had over 30, that's three zero sources, um, in the high, you know, high levels of the of the Trump administration and the National Security Council and the CIA, um, confirming that this was true. That under the Trump administration and under CIA, the directorship of Mike Pompeo, when he was at the helm of the CIA, the CIA was actively planning, conspiring to murder Julian, to assassinate him in the United Kingdom. Uh, to con- there were plans also to kidnap him, to rendition him. There was talks of black sites and shootouts, um, and that Mike Pompeo was obsessed uh, with taking down Julian and WikiLeaks. And that's because WikiLeaks, as soon as the Trump administration came in, published uh, about uh, the CIA's um, illegal activities in the form of uh, their um, a publication called Vault 7, which enraged uh, CIA director Mike Pompeo, and he made it, you know, out of, uh, the article says, a, an obsession uh, that wasn't didn't correspond to any threat that WikiLeaks posed compared, you know, at all as a publisher, uh, especially when, you know, the CIA has actual um, concerns uh, over, you know, national security that don't concern journalists. Uh, but he, this was his, his obsession to take down WikiLeaks. And so WikiLeaks became uh, the target of a wide ranging attack, including the planting of, of false fabricated stories uh, in the mainstream media. And the most famous story was uh, the false story that the fabricated story that Paul Manafort and Julian Assange met in the Ecuadorian embassy. This was published as a front page story of the Guardian and it is now unanimously, universally uh, seen as, as one of the most embarrassing episodes of the Guardian um, that they that they published this, this fabrication. Uh, so it was a, a wide ranging um, attack to prepare the ga- ground for, for Julian's arrest. Um, so it, it's wrong to, you know, suggest that, that the CIA had a plan that failed. No, their plan was to get Julian incarcerated. Um, and that was a Trump administration 
decision, and that is a decision that the Biden administration is incomprehensibly uh, furthering. You've been listening to Stella Assange, wife of WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. Julian Assange is being held in solitary confinement in a London prison while the U.S. pursues extradition and prosecution for publishing reports of U.S. crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Coming up, can President Biden be stopped from sending banned cluster bombs to Ukraine? Code Pink co-founder Medea Benjamin and I will try to answer that question. But first, Eddie Vedder singing, I Shall Be Released. I want to thank all, all the artists for being here and supporting the foundation. And all of you, of course, thank you so much. They say everything can be replaced They say every distance is not near And so I remember every face Of every man who put me here I see my light come shining From the west down to the east Any day now, any day now I shall be Every man must need protection They say that every man must fall But I swear I see my reflection Somewhere so high above this wall Welcome back to Code Pink Radio. I'm your host, Marcy Winograd, and with me is Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, to talk about an article that we wrote together entitled, Stop Biden from Sending Cluster Bombs to Ukraine. And you can read all about it at the codepink.org blog. Uh, In this article, we discuss efforts in Congress to block the shipment of these internationally banned weapons. Cluster munitions are shells that contain hundreds if not thousands of submunitions, small bombs that can be dropped by aircraft or fired by a ground-based weapon system to indiscriminately cover an area as wide as several football fields. The Pentagon likes these weapons. Why? Because they can strike multiple targets. They think somehow this is going to miraculously uh, help Ukraine in its counteroffensive that's been slow going. Human rights groups, prominent Democrats are coming out to denounce this decision. For a week, Uh, Up until Biden made the announcement official, uh, there were lots of whispers, there were leaked reports that he might do this. We weren't sure. Uh, But ultimately, he did approve setting these bombs that have been banned by over 100 countries. I was actually, you know, maybe I was naive, but I I was surprised that he actually went ahead with this announcement. I'm wondering uh, what your reaction was. I wasn't surprised at all, Marcy, because he's been going back on everything that he says. 
you know, he gets so much pressure from the hawks in his own party, from the uh, Republican hawks, from Zelensky himself, who says, you know, we're not making the progress we wanted to in this counteroffensive because you're not sending us enough weapons quickly enough. So, you know, he gets um, all that kind of pressure. And let's face it, he has been backtracking on every other uh, kind of weapons that he has said no to. So I wasn't surprised about it. Um, I am surprised. I mean, it is nice that there has been a reaction from some of the Democrats who have been going along with him on everything else. But, you know, it's a little bit um, too little too late. I don't know how you feel about it. Maybe, Marcy, you could talk about what the reaction among Democrats has been. Sure. Well, I, I like to be optimistic. A little too late. Well, it's a little at least, and we've got to build on that. And that's and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I was, you know, heartened to see that there were voices on the Sunday talk shows. Tim Kaine, who is Hillary Clinton's vice presidential candidate from Virginia, he was on Fox News uh, denouncing Biden's decision. Uh, Barbara Lee, she went on CNN to say, "Look, uh, this is Barbara Lee talking as chair of the." House Appropriations Subcommittee on Foreign Operations, I, Barbara Lee, was instrumental in making sure that uh, these cluster munitions were banned. But there is, uh, of course, a loophole that allows for the president to say, this is a vital national security interest. We've got to send these weapons. But getting back to the Democrats, you know, the 19 Democrats uh, signed a letter talking about how this decision by Biden to send cluster munitions that have been banned by so many countries, including 18 NATO countries, uh, is uh, undermining U.S. moral leadership in the world. Well, I'm not sure that the U.S. has any moral leadership to begin with, but I guess that's the, the safe line for Democrats who oppose this decision. And then, you know, yesterday I, I looked at the Washington Post and there was an op-ed by uh, Tim Kaine again. Is this guy running for president? I'm wondering. Uh, Tim Kaine and former Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. Oh, no, uh, I think that was Leahy and Merkley. Oh, you're right. Excuse yeah. me. Leahy and Merkley, uh, Merkley of Oregon. Uh, Leahy uh, was instrumental in, in pushing through a ban on landmines, yeah? So uh, it's getting some attention and it's also raising questions about NATO unity during the, the summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. It's, uh, I also um, think it's important to point out that the New York Times had its own editorial today uh, denouncing the decision. And it goes back to quote the Secretary General of the UN at the time, Ban Ki-moon, uh, who said that the ban expressed the world's collective revulsion at these abhorrent weapons. Uh, so I think it is good that there's been this backlash and that there are a few countries uh, within the NATO membership that have spoken out. Um, I also know that there is an amendment that has been introduced by Sarah Jacobs and Ilhan Omar to the National Defense Appropriations Act. And we will know this week whether that gets uh, axed or whether it stays in, but um, that is an important amendment to try to get more members of Congress to try to reverse Biden's decision. Yes, yeah, so uh, the National Defense Authorization Act 
is the military budget, basically. It's called the NDAA. And uh, now we're looking at a $920 billion NDAA military budget. Uh, this amendment, there, you know, tons of amendments are introduced. We know we've seen them introduced and then they're discarded. Uh, some of them actually do hit the floor for a vote. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us at Code Pink, at listeners, anyone who supports peace and abhors the use of these anti-personnel personnel weapons to ask their House representative to co-sponsor this bill. Uh, I, I understand that there are multiple organizations and human rights organizations that are making this request. So we'll see what happens. I know that Jim McGovern, who chairs the House Rules Committee, he was one of the first Democrats to co-sponsor this amendment. So, uh, you know, any dissension on this, I think, is welcome, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's remember the House is now in the hands of the Republicans. So, um, you know, they're uh, unfortunately uh, not joining in uh, in this opposition. In fact, I haven't heard anything from that group of far right Republicans that have been opposing the weapons to Ukraine. Uh, I haven't heard them speak out about this. But I think, Marcy, all of this is important to put in the perspective that um, we don't want to just stop this horrific uh, weapon from being sent to Ukraine. We want to stop the war. And that uh, this is another example of how dangerous the escalation is. And that uh, we also know that uh, while these weapons might continue to kill civilians for many years to come, they're not going to change the uh, configuration on the battlefield. Uh, and so we really need to keep pushing for a ceasefire and peace talks. Yes. And just to back up a little, when you mentioned this uh, far right group in the Republican Party, I think they're the Freedom Caucus or they're, the, the, you know, they were the outgrowth of the Freedom Caucus. Actually, I saw a tweet by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Hey, she's not my friend. OK, but she was uh, she could have been a member of Code Pink denouncing this in her tweet, saying this has nothing to do with national security. This is uh, abusive. Uh, it's further escalation and so forth. So perhaps more and more will speak out within the Republican Party, though we know that the Republican leadership uh, in the Senate and in the House have been in support of sending these weapons. Let's talk about cluster cluster munitions for a minute. You know, the, the, the background and why there's so much outrage. So just to, to run down the background and the timeline, this is what it looks like. In 2008, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates issued an order to phase out by 2018 cluster munitions with an unexploded ordnance rate of greater than 1%. Okay, in 2011, Obama affirms this policy. 2017, Trump disregards that policy. Uh, for 2018, he says uh, there will be no deadline for phasing out cluster munitions that fail to explode. Uh, Congress then passed legislation forbidding the export of cluster bombs that leave behind more than 1% of their submunitions, or what they call duds. So they talk about a dud rate. Uh, however, as we see here, Biden's saying, hey, we've got to send these uh, abhorrent weapons to Ukraine because uh, this will help the counteroffensive. And he uses, he invokes this excuse of national, vital national security. What's your reaction, Medea? Is this uh, a vital national security? 
Well, it's ridiculous to say that sending cluster munitions is uh, in the national security because if the U.S. did care about uh, international law and being part of the uh, having some moral grounding, it would be sticking to this treaty that 123 countries have signed. Um, but I, I uh, also think that um, we have to recognize that. Um, while the U.S. keeps crossing these lines, one of the excuses they're using is that Russia and Ukraine have both already used cluster munitions. And that is true. Uh, oftentimes, uh, administration officials will cite Russia using them and will fail to say that Ukraine has been using them as well. Uh, the uh, human rights groups have condemned both parties for using them. But this will lift it to another level in terms of the amounts that are being sent. They're talking about hundreds of thousands of these. So while it's never an excuse to be saying, well, my opponent is doing this, so I can too, um, we should also recognize that it takes it to new levels. And, um, you know, we really should be thinking about what is the Ukrainian government contemplating in terms of the future? Because it will be Ukrainian citizens, Ukrainian children that will be killed by these bombs. So it's very, very short-sighted thinking. Absolutely. And uh, just to clarify, so these bombs that failed to explode and what there were millions that failed to explode, the tiny bombs uh, in Laos when the U.S. Uh, used cluster munitions there. These bombs, they litter the landscape of you know, several football fields. Civilians step on them. Uh, children might pick them up thinking they're toys only to have their limbs severed. This goes on and on and, uh, and the cleanup operations drag on if they happen at all, right? Yes, and I have been in several areas where uh, cluster munitions were used and it could be many decades ago uh, like in the case of the, quote, demilitarized zone around North Korea, um, that is still unusable for farming and dangerous for people. Or I was in southern Lebanon after the Israelis uh, just littered the whole area of southern Lebanon uh, with these cluster munitions. In fact, uh, that was one of the reasons that led to the, uh, to the ban. Um, and uh, farmers in that region are still uh, being hurt as children are being hurt from these. So whether we talk about Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, or we talk about other areas of the world, including Afghanistan, um, the the suffering goes on and on. Yes, and you know, on a on a hopeful note, uh, and some may disagree who are listening. On a hopeful note, this is one more wedge that divides NATO. Uh, people say, oh, NATO, I've heard this. People will say, oh, NATO is a defensive alliance. That's not true. Look at what NATO did. There's NATO has left a trail of blood in Afghanistan, Libya, Kosovo. Uh, it's hardly a defensive alliance, nor is it an alliance of those who support, who necessarily support democracy. Look at some of the outliers like uh, Turkey or Hungary and their leadership, Italy. So, uh, what is NATO other than uh, an arms cartel? I'm not really sure. But this is one wedge, along with other wedges, you know, the, whether or not NATO will uh, admit Ukraine, there's lots of pushback on that, whether or not NATO will admit Sweden pushback from Turkey and Hungary on that. So uh, 
What do you think? What does it spell for the future of NATO? Well, I think there are all kinds of potential, as well as um, a present, divisions in NATO. Uh, certainly the governments of the NATO countries and the media like to portray it as one happy family that's fighting the fight for global democracy. Uh, but internally, we see many divisions. We see uh, countries from Turkey, Greece, Hungary that don't abide by the sanctions against Russia. Uh, we see internally uh, uh, movements in places like Italy, uh, Czech Republic, having a lot of uh, internal opposition to the um, uh, inflation that has been caused by this war. Uh, we see um, opposition internally in NATO countries to this push to keep sending, spending more and more money on militarism uh, as, as this has exploded with the Ukraine war. Uh, and so this is one more issue. You know, these 23 NATO countries that have signed the ban, it's not only that they're not supposed to use these weapons, it's that they're not supposed to cooperate uh, with the using of these weapons. And so this brings up an issue for them in how are they going to uh, deal with the transport and the use of these munitions that the U.S. is supplying so I think you're right, Marcy. This is one uh, more example of divisions within NATO, uh, which for us, I think, uh, in the, those of us who want to see a um, cooperative and peaceful world, um, we think these divisions are actually a good thing. Uh, the more that there is opposition within NATO to this very aggressive, dangerous alliance, um, the sooner we can move towards a world where uh, our alliances are for um, cooperating and not for killing each other. For our final segment of Code Pink Radio, we will go to Savim Degladin, a member of the German Left Party and the German Parliament, speaking at a conference in Europe on the need for Germany to leave NATO, declare its neutrality, and support a ceasefire in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is claiming lives each and every day. In Germany, we have so-called military experts, such as Florence Gaup, the director of research division at the NATO Defense College in Italy, who have publicly declared very lately that we shouldn't advocate for a ceasefire or for peace negotiations because conflicts have their internal clock. And only when it has run out is a ceasefire possible. Our response to these cynics of power is that, no, this war must end, and it must end immediately. We need an immediate ceasefire without preconditions and a diplomatic solution in Ukraine. And let me... Let me say quite clearly that those who want to make this contingent on prior commitments by either of the warring, warring parties just want this war to continue. And this madness must be stopped. And it appears that an agreement was on the table in March 2022. And it's disgrace, that's a disgrace, that the then conservative UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson in cahoots with the US administration prevented a deal from being reached. So let's take a close look 
at what's happening now. The war in Ukraine has turned into a dangerous NATO proxy war against Russia. And this war has the potential to escalate, also thanks to the supply of more and more and increasingly heavy weapons. Anyone who wants to prevent a nuclear war in Europe must stand up to this escalation. And apparently there is more at stake here that NATO countries are crossing the line from non-belligerent to belligerent parties in this war. They are doing this in the form of cooperation between intelligence services by advising and coordinating liaison officers on the ground, by exchanging technical and tactical expertise, and by comparing situational pictures to the point of joint situation planning and training Ukrainian soldiers on the use of Western weapons on a massive scale. The recent attacks with British Storm's shadow missiles represent a fresh escalation in this regard. This spiral of escalation must be stopped. The supplies of weapons to the war zone must be stopped. Brazil, China, and six African countries have launched peace initiatives and traveled to Kiev and Moscow. Why isn't this being supported in Washington, in Berlin, in London, or even in Dublin? I often hear people... I often hear people ask what the problem, what the problem with NATO is since, or so they argue, it is a purely defense alliance. But anyone who claims that NATO is a purely defense alliance either isn't familiar with the history of the military pact or is knowingly lying to the public. Didn't NATO wage war in Afghanistan for 20 years? Didn't NATO invade Yugoslavia in 1999 without a mandate from the UN Security Council? Didn't NATO wage a murderous war to implement regime change in Libya in 2011 in violation of a UN Security Council resolution? And wasn't it NATO that, despite promises to the contrary, continued to expand further and further east right up to Russia's border, border? Wasn't it NATO that, back in 2014, committed itself to a gigantic, gigantic rearmament program, program with the 2% target? No, dear friends, NATO is a warfare alliance. Anyone who accedes to its party to murder and manslaughter as well as the violations of international law, and that's why it should be dissolved, the NATO. And that's why... <laughs> and that's why, also against the backdrop of, of, of its proxy war in Ukraine, I have called Germany's withdrawal from this military pact and for the withdrawal of the US soldiers after 70 years, it's about time that they go home, that they leave the country, and that take their...
and that they take their nuclear weapons with them. And then I've heard the argument that NATO is an alliance of democracies against autocrats. So it's really amazing that no one is remotely ashamed of propagating such high-grade nonsense. This argument is historically false. NATO never had a problem with fascist dictatorships as members, as in the case of Portugal under Salazar, or in the case of Greece following the military coup. And today, it has no problem with the autocrat Erdogan or the fascist Meloni in Italy. But those who enter into pacts with autocrats should please stop claiming that this is a question of democracy and human rights. And when German tanks are rolling into battle against Russia right now, and the German government, in response to my questions, cannot even rule out the possibility of NATO's weapons ending up in the hands of Russian neo-Nazi groups, who are now evidently carrying out attacks against Russia with the support of Ukraine, then we must be worried. We have seen with ISIS in Syria what a Frankenstein monster created by the West is capable of doing. This policy is despisable. A few days ago, the European Union adopted its 11th package on, of sanctions against Russia. This time around, extraterritorial sanctions are set to be imposed on third parties, the first time ever. Brussels is not only at risk of becoming a party to the war itself by providing military aid on a massive scale and training soldiers. By doing this, the European Union is also intensifying its self-destructive economic war. While the Russian economy is growing by 2%, Germany is hurtling into recession and the European Union will soon follow suit. More and more people can no longer afford the skyrocketing prices on food and energy. The combination of a gigantic rearmament program to the tune of more than 1.1 trillion US dollars by the NATO and the European Union countries this year, from which only the shareholders of the arms industry, of the military industrial complex, and a self-destructive economic war is poison for our societies. And that's why this madness must be stopped too. Dear friends, neutrality is a very precious commodity these days. After all, only those who preserve their neutrality also preserve their democratic sovereignty. A government of the people by the people. Many countries in the global south are having to witness right now how the NATO countries are unwilling to accept their neutrality, but want to force them, the countries of the global south, to force them to sign up to the economic war and the deliveries of weapons. In a kind of neocolonialism, they want to tell the countries of the global south what to do. The most recent example of this is the right-wing pro-NATO government of Finland, which wants to cut off development assistance 
to African countries that it considers to be too pro-Russian on the basis of how they cast their votes in the United Nations General Assembly. Ireland has a long history of fighting for independence against colonial oppression, of which everyone here can be justifiably proud. Neutrality is at the heart of its hard-fought independence. To defend neutrality, also in this day and age, is to defend freedom, justice, and democracy itself. You have, my friends, our solidarity in this so very important struggle. Let us stand together against this war and against this escalation for an immediate ceasefire in Ukraine for peace negotiation, and let's win the peace and not the war. Thank you. You have been listening to a member of the German Parliament. I'm Marcy Winograd, and I want to lift up the voices of those featured on this Code Pink radio podcast. Stella Assange, wife of imprisoned journalist Julian Assange. Jody Evans, co-founder of Code Pink. Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream. Glenn Greenwald, journalist and former constitutional rights lawyer. Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. And Savim Degdalin of the German Left Party. I also want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Peace. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlyle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink. Our phones and the places we meet, they curtail our speech. Our